0: It's our body saying, like, this is my true no. And we steamroll over it, and we betray ourselves all the time. We don't just exist for our productivity. We also exist to have a little bit of spaciousness to just enjoy the what is to be enjoyed about the human experience. And I think the ease itself is medicine. Mm-hmm.
1: show. Thanks, Lisa. It's so good to be here. Oh, my God. I'm so happy to have you back and talk about your new book. It goes deep on anxiety. And the first thing I want to talk about that you said that hit me so hard. I was like, we have to start here. It's not all in your head. Yeah. Talk to me about why you said that. And then we can piece it from there. Yeah.
0: So this is where we're at in the field right now. Psychiatry and psychology, neuroscience. We think about mental health from the neck up. We think about it as like, well, your thoughts, your behaviors, your brain chemistry. And um, what ends up being true is that a lot of what's happening in our brain, it's not that brain chemistry doesn't matter, but it's often a downstream effect of things that are happening elsewhere in the body. So it's really done a disservice to mental health for decades to be so focused here and to not recognize that what's happening in the rest of the physical body impacts our mental health. And so in many ways, it's actually an easier entry point to think, let's get the physical body into a state of balance. And then mental health follows.
1: Okay. I love that. It's interesting because when I read it, I actually thought of it as like, people are calling you crazy. Mm -hmm. And I'm just saying, it's not all in your head. Like, it's actually real. So I actually love that you just broke it down and surprised me with that because they actually do really go together.
0: Yeah. And I mean, the whole expression of it's all in your head is a whole other conversation that sort of even pertains to things like misogyny, <laughs> which has to do with the fact that we're thinking, um, well, this is this, this woman's experience and here's how she's perceiving reality. And the rest of us see that and we think, no, it's not rational. It's not objectively something that we can prove. And so we might look on and say, oh, that's crazy. It's all in her head. Mm-hmm. But part of what I'm also here to suggest around anxiety is that we can trust our subjective experience and that for many of us in an attempt to be accepted in the boys club of the patriarchy, we've had to suppress some of our intuition and some of our more kind of um, these less rational aspects of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so it's all in your head. I, I sort of attack that on many angles and I think we can start to trust how
1: we're perceiving reality. That was so freaking amazing. And now I actually want to take both. So the idea of it's actually not all in your head, you're not crazy, you're not imagining it, there is actually a problem with you, right? Like if you've got a broken leg, you take a scan, go, there's a break, yeah, go to the doctors, do this. But with the mind, we don't think like that. Mm. So I'd love to actually, um, if you can guide us through what are some things that can indicate that it's not in our head, that we're actually having this effect. And then let's talk about the fact that it's not in your head, and that it actually is in your body and how you start to connect the two and start waving the flags when you notice that they're happening yeah
0: I break anxiety down into very different categories than how I was trained I was trained to think about anxiety according to the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, to think like, well, is it generalized anxiety disorder or is it panic disorder with or without agoraphobic features? Mm. And when I think about it, that doesn't change management in the way that I approach mental health. And that's always a key question is, well, are these categorizations, does that impact how we're going to approach management? What those really do is gatekeep us from diagnoses and therefore medication. Mm. I'm not doing a lot of prescribing medication, so I don't really need to do a lot of gatekeeping. And if somebody comes to me and they have a subjective experience that they are anxious, to me that's like hook, line and sinker. We're done, that's the diagnosis. If they're feeling anxious, in my book that's anxiety. And I don't really need to see if they meet criteria for Mm. clinical anxiety Mm. because it's not going to change how we approach it. I'm going to accept as fact that they are struggling in some way in their life. They're suffering. And they characterize it as a feeling of anxiety. So we're going to think, how do we have them feel less of that? And so I really think about anxiety as false anxiety and true anxiety, and false anxiety that term can be a little bit triggering, mm-hmm. um, because it feels invalidating and uh, certainly not my intention. It's, um, it really speaks to the fact that this is avoidable anxiety. It's not an anxiety that we have to keep carrying around with us our whole lives. And it has to do with the fact that many seemingly benign, really common aspects of modern life are getting our body out of balance, and oftentimes it precipitates a stress response. And so if our blood sugar crashes, if we drank particularly strong coffee that day, if we're sleep deprived, if we just went down a rabbit hole on our phone, it can put our body in a stress response. And then that stress response, which is then um, coursing through our veins with hormones like cortisol and adrenaline, and it's activating the amygdala, this kind of fear center in our brain, it's going to feel synonymous with anxiety. Mm. So we're going through our whole lives being like, I feel anxious, I am someone with anxiety. But sometimes it's actually a blood sugar issue or inflammation or chronic sleep deprivation. And so that's the false anxiety. It's preventable. It's avoidable. And it really just takes identifying, sort of doing this, um, taking inventory of all the different ways we can get our bodies out of balance and getting it back into
1: balance. And then we walk away from that kind of anxiety that's what i was going to ask you is how do you even know that it is from oh you just slept badly last night you just ate that cake like how do you differentiate because in that moment right your feelings feel so valid you feel like no no no, the world is crashing down around me stop telling me it's the fact that i didn't sleep nine hours last night how do you start to break that down so you can start to seek it because i'm all about i want the truth Right. If it's I'm drinking too much coffee, if it's this, if it's I'm bringing stress on myself, if it's actually hormonal, like I don't judge myself. I just want the answer so then I can fix it. Yeah. But people do judge themselves. And so how do you eliminate the judgment? And then in order to see the cause clearly, this is so sensitive. You really hit on
0: such an important issue. So, um, yeah, the suffering is no less real. Right. It Mm -hmm. it is exactly the same as what we're going to talk about in a minute, like true anxiety. False anxiety is still a very real, exquisitely uncomfortable sensation of anxiety. Um, And when you're in the moment of it, we don't necessarily have the presence of mind to be like, oh, you know what? It's probably just that I need a snack. So what I have my patients do and what I actually put in the book is this little piece of paper it's like a little list that you can put on your refrigerator or keep in your wallet that just cues your memory like well are you hungry are you dehydrated um, did you get lousy sleep last night are you in the f- days right before your period um, you know all these different ways that our body might be in tipped into a stress response and it can take the charge out of the feeling in that moment mm-hmm. if we're like, everything is doom and gloom, everything is terrible, I'm so anxious, it's not gonna be okay. And then we realize like, oh yeah, I did eat something funny, and I can feel that my stomach is not feeling quite right. Like if your stomach's not feeling quite right, it's really hard to mentally feel right. And so we can say, okay, that is probably the culprit in this Mm -hmm. moment. And we do get sensitive about this, because in that moment it can feel very invalidating, it also can feel like it caught us in a sort of being tricked or deluded by our own thoughts. You know, we can be like, no, but I really am anxious about this thing going on at work, so how could it just be something like a stomachache? Feels too mundane. Mm -hmm. Um, But then you start to think, well, if it's a blood sugar drop, then if I have a little snack, will I feel a little bit better afterward? And cumulatively, after you start to address the potential false anxieties, you do start to see, oh when I keep my physical body in balance or when I address or correct an imbalance I do feel less anxious and so little by little we can kind of tiptoe toward an understanding of sometimes these seemingly mundane benign physical states really are
1: at the root of our anxiety. That is so amazing because what I love I get in my way so much with my own emotions and I need a guide I need something to turn to to go Oh, no, no, it's okay, Lisa. You are feeling it, yeah. but you now you've got a way out. You can get more sleep. And so that is so important as a way to identify. And then I love what you're saying about now get to know yourself. Like I love nine, nine hours sleep. It's great mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. But if I sleep six, I know myself and know, oh, three days later, I'm going to be grumpy. Yeah. So getting to know yourself, and that's a great way of doing that. Yeah, I mean, a really common one that
0: I see come up a lot is the relationship to alcohol, which is not a popular conversation. I don't make any friends with this, but I do feel some responsibility to have a public conversation about this. Alcohol, you know, People love it. Um, We have a lot of marketing telling us it's heart healthy, you know, it's like girl boss power, like all this kind of stuff. Um, But we do need to recognize it's carcinogenic. It's, you know, not promoting longevity. It's not actually heart healthy. Um, It can be the choice in the moment that is the act of radical self-love. I'm not saying one should never ever drink, um, but we have to discern when is it the act of self-love. But what I see Mm -hmm. with my patients with anxiety is that even if they just track that variable alone, um, here's when they drink and how do they feel that night, how do they feel the next morning, the next day, over the course of that week. Um, What my patients have really started to see and what the literature bears out is that when we're drinking, that's going to create a little bit more anxiety in the mind. And it it has a very specific chemical correlate for why this happens, which is that alcohol washes our brain in a Mm. neurotransmitter called GABA. And GABA, we don't talk enough about GABA. We talk about serotonin. That's something we're all sort of familiar with. But GABA is critically important to anxiety, and it's our primary inhibitory neurotransmitter. It's the one that says... does that exactly mean? Sure, (laughs) I'll translate that. It basically (laughs) means, like, it tells your body, your brain, like, shh, everything's okay. Mm. Calm down. And um, it's kind of an endangered species in modern life for many reasons. Everything from the fact that we drink alcohol and are chronically sleep-deprived, take things like benzodiazepines and then all the way to the fact that we have very decimated gut flora so we're missing certain species of bacteria called bacteroides that help in the synthesis of GABA so we have this sort of multi-front assault on our body's ability to have healthy GABA signaling when we drink alcohol it rushes our brain in GABA and that makes us feel relaxed and like all the things that we were wound up and worried about a minute ago suddenly we don't worry about so much feels good Um, The problem is our brain doesn't really care whether or not we're relaxed. It's concerned with survival. So it sees that relaxation and it thinks, well, if a leopard came around the corner, we'd be too buzzed to care. (laughs) And so (laughs) this is dangerous. This is why drunk driving, right? Like Mm. we don't have the same judgment. Mm. And so um, what happens is it takes all of that GABA and it converts it to something called glutamate, which is an excitatory neurotransmitter and then suddenly we go from we're so relaxed we don't have a care in the world to we're on edge we're irritable mm. we're tossing and turning the second half of the night when we're sleeping and this is a really primary contributor to anxiety so when my patients start to track that they know themselves a little bit better and they can start to identify like this is you know this is me and this is a more anxious version of me after I've had some alcohol mm. you know a day after I've been drinking And so there is a kind of a self-knowledge in this, but you're exactly right that it's sensitive at first because we sort of want to just double down. It's like, no, I feel this way and it's real. And if someone says, well, no, it's actually just that you're sleep deprived and hungover, it it feels like an attack. We Mm -hmm. get defensive and that's understandable. But if you do this exercise with yourself and just kind of make it safe for yourself to explore and be curious about physiologic impacts on your anxiety, you can start to learn.
1: I love that. Now let's talk about, and we'll definitely go through the true anxiety because that's super important, but I just want to stick on the force for a moment. Um, When your body is tricking you, telling you that you should be anxious, but it's it's just responding to something. So you even said caffeine, right? Like caffeine being something where it makes me feel great. It makes me feel awake. And then you, you may not realize that it's having this knock-on effect. Um, so even, so going back to what you're saying, get to know yourself. It was my husband who suffers sometimes from anxiety. He was the one that told me he must always stay warm. And I didn't understand it at first. I was like, what do you mean? I'm like, you're always warm. Like, you put the heat on. He's like, when I start to shiver, my body and my brain, because he already suffers from anxiety, is saying, oh, you're anxious. So he would just go from being cold to actually getting anxious just by being cold. Yes. Um, Same with Diet Coke. He found the um, aspartame, I think, that is in Diet Coke. He found that that specifically, so it wasn't even the caffeine. So he did a whole trial where he was drinking coffee, and then he was drinking Diet Coke, and he assessed that it was the aspartame that was creating his heart to race, which then the heart racing was telling his body, oh, you're anxious, which then was messing with his mind, This is such an important point, 100% this. So there's a kind of two
0: different ways that this is impacting our anxiety. One is that substances or an experience like being cold that makes our body do some of the things we would associate with anxiety or panic. So cold makes you shiver, kind of tremulous and shake, contract tension, Mm -hmm. that can, feed back to the brain and be like, well, here's what's happening in the body. And the brain can be like, oh, I know that sensation. That's what happens when I'm anxious. That's what happens when I panic. And so the brain thinks we must be anxious. Um, You know, the converse of this is also a tool for coming out of anxiety is no matter what's going on in your brain, if you can approximate the conditions in your body of relaxation, it can kind of trick our gullible brain back to relaxation. Breathing exercises is a perfect example of this. We're just breathing as if you were a relaxed person. Mm. And relaxed people, babies, they breathe where their exhale is a little bit longer than their inhale. It's deep, diaphragmatic breathing. That's a way to trick our brain. It kind of sends a signal up to our brain like, well, the body is breathing as though we're relaxed. And the brain is like, By Jove, I never thought I'd say it, but okay, we must be relaxed. Mm. And so um, I have something I see a lot in my patients. Um, I have some patients who, um, if they'll get dehydrated in the summer and they're standing waiting on a subway platform and then they sort of start to get lightheaded and then their heart has to beat a little bit faster to make sure that it's getting enough blood up to the brain and that is the sensation of anxiety to them, that lightheadedness, so they start to have a panic attack from that experience. But as I mentioned, it's sort of a double effect because the sensation of being cold, the lightheadedness from dehydration when you're freestanding, this does also necessitate some degree of a stress response from the body. Mm-hmm. So it also just directly contributes to anxiety. Which just
1: makes it even worse. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's now talk about true anxiety yeah. because, um, yeah, let's go down that rabbit hole. That rabbit hole. So <laughs> <clears throat> true anxiety is
0: where it's, it's not avoidable, it's not preventable. It's actually purposeful anxiety. It's the part of anxiety that's really kind of beautiful and it's really when anxiety is not here as a symptom or a nuisance, but it's a communication. It's a call to action. It's basically our body communicating to us something's really not right. And it's not always obvious. It might be in our personal life. Maybe it's something's not right in our relationship, in our work life. Maybe we're attuned to the fact that something's not right in our community or on a more global scale, but it's basically a little tap on your shoulder from a deep inner knowing that's saying, something's not right here. Can you take steps to address this? And it's the part of anxiety that we don't want to medicate away. We really mm-hmm. couldn't if we tried. You're not going to fix it by going gluten-free or healing your gut or drinking less coffee. Mm-hmm. We, we don't even necessarily want to fix it. I think we actually wanna avoid the temptation to pathologize it. We wanna see it as not the nuisance or the symptoms to suppress, but the communication to heed. And so when we figure out what is our true anxiety, then the task at hand is to slow down and to listen. And then when we hear that message, to actually believe it and honor it and take some steps accordingly. And once we're doing that, once we're sort of taking action, It doesn't feel so uncomfortable. It feels purposeful. It feels like it's kind of the wind in our sails and it gives us some
1: forward momentum towards where we need to make changes. I love that. I'm all about perspective. And, you know, hearing you say that, it really is like just changing the language that you can use about it. So, you know, instead of saying like, oh my God, I'm so anxious. I'm embarrassed. Let me hide. Let me, you know, like, all these negative words that are associated with the feeling anxious to just flipping, oh, thank you for letting me know something's wrong. Yeah. Like I even do tones, right, I do faces, expressions because I really <laughs> want to embody, because I know that I'm trying to trick myself so I try to do everything I can. So just like, oh my God, thank you, buddy. Wow, this is so enlightening. What are you anxious about, Lisa? And I try to do that so I don't judge myself, so I don't beat myself up and so that I get excited about trying to figure out the uh, the outcome, like how I get over it. Yeah
0: yeah and I think this really speaks to something else I address in the book, which is that oftentimes a lot of us need um, almost like couples therapy between ourselves and you. our body right <laughs> yeah. so it's like we we're in a bad relationship many of us with our bodies with the communications that come mm-hmm. from within if you think about it and I, there's no blaming the individual here we have cultural conditioning around this that tells us you know Um, like bounce back after childbirth right Mm. it's almost like it's it's like you and diet culture against your body and rather than like oh thank you body and what do you need right now and you just went through an ordeal and you're healing and so I think many of us kind of need to sit down in the therapist's office with our bodies Mm. and um, approach it with an open-ended loving question of like help me understand what you need help me understand what's alive in you. And our bodies, I think when they're given the space to tell us like, well, here's what I need. I need more nourishment. I need more rest. I need more passion. I need more free time, creativity, nature. Our bodies have things to tell us and it's really, we want to feel like we're on the same team as our body. Mm. And kind of say like, well, I don't have a personal chef. I can't necessarily get you all of that right now, but I'm going to do my best to get you some of what you're asking for. And so to just feel like it's us against the world rather than us against our bodies. Mm. So, you know, ourselves, us with our body together against the world.
1: all lowercase again guys you can go to shopify.com slash lisa right now to grow your business no matter where you are and what stage it's in that's shopify.com slash lisa i love that how do you start that though because you know for so many of us myself very included, i've had like massive gut issues i've been battling over the last six years for so long i didn't listen to my body i was ignoring i was pushing it in fact i was like I was actually in battle with my body, where my body's trying to send signals and I'm just like with a bat, freaking knocking it back. So how do you advise people who are in that same situation, who have deliberately not listened to it, have pushed it away? So I I wouldn't even know where to start. For me, it was my gut just completely fell apart. So that was the catalyst to me starting to listen to it. Mm. But let's say people right now are at home listening, they're noticing, yes, I have anxiety. Okay, great, I really want to listen to my body. How do you even start to do that if you've been ignoring it for so long? I think this is tricky.
0: You know I love like actionable strategies. Yeah. And I think this one doesn't necessarily have the like three steps that you start with, but it's, it happens subtly throughout life. Um, you can lie on your bed with your hands on your belly, take deep, slow breaths, and just listen and sort of try to tune in. What is my body telling me? Have I been go, go, going through my life and steamrolling over any communications from my body? Is there some opportunity here to slow down and listen? But if that feels too abstract and intangible and like weird for most people and kind of woo-woo, I think it's about catching yourself in the moment. Um, and, And when you're about to do something, if you get that little spidey sense, that little catch in your breath, a hesitation, That's a moment to slow down, Mm. kind of press time out, and say like, what is that hesitation? And often what's going on there is that it's our body saying like, this is my true no, and we steamroll over it, and we betray ourselves all the time. So we really just need to start catching ourselves in those micro moments, and listening. I really love the work of Marshall Rosenberg, who wrote the book Nonviolent Communication. Mm. And the way he teaches it, if I have it correct, is basically that we have our true yes and our false yes and our true no. And a lot of us go through our lives constantly giving out our false yes. If, if we are like, some we bump into somebody and they're like, oh, it's so good to see you. I haven't seen you in 15 years. Do you want to get coffee? And what goes through our mind is, ooh, I'm actually really stretched thin right now. And I'm trying to um, finish this project at work. And all of my spare time is trying to prioritize time with my daughter And this time. You know, we're thinking like, no bandwidth, no bandwidth. And then, but what we hear ourselves saying is, okay, sure. Because we don't want to disappoint people. We want to people please. We've been conditioned our whole lives to say yes. Um, and so we give this false yes. And every time we do that, it doesn't end well. You know, we either, we either end up flaking last minute or we um, compromise our own well-being or compromise our other priorities. Or one I really think is particularly interesting is we go, but we resent the other person. Yes! And like, if you think about it, if you were on the other side of that, you would never want someone to say yes to a coffee with you if it meant they were gonna resent you for it. So, but then also it trains us to sort of silence that inner voice. Mm. We're just systematically betraying ourselves over and over in these tiny ways. Um, But then that inner voice that we're trying to kind of get into couples therapy with just learns, like, what's the point? And it feels silenced and it doesn't see any platform for being heard
1: so how on earth would you approach that situation like would do you plan them before and go okay I've noticed that I'm anxious I know that I'm now knowing myself enough that I'm probably gonna do a false yes like how do you actually yeah. process oh that? that's hard so <laughs> there's many people
0: right now with great content and material around boundaries why but so that coffee example you basically have to pause know that it's actually a true no for you and then speak that respectfully kindly but uh, also somewhat unapologetically. It's, you know what, it's so good to bump into. you. I wish we could get together, but I'm actually really low on bandwidth right now. So let's circle back, you know, in the spring. And which in certain ways is me just kind of, you know, wiggling out of the boundary a little bit. I do that. But I think that that's a way of honoring our true no in that mm-hmm. moment. And people sometimes do protests. And a lot of us, as soon, at the first protest, we're like, okay, never mind, we'll just get the coffee. But what you actually want to do in that moment is is be like, it's, your protest is actually not really my responsibility. And oftentimes people protest when we set a boundary of something like that was never really theirs. Mm -hmm. And so to not always feel conditioned that we owe our energy and our time to anybody asking for it.
1: And do you think, because that really feels like you're showing up for yourself, right? You've told yourself, hey, look, this is for your own well-being. You need to make a change. So you're saying no. Um, Is that a way of um, not betraying yourself and allowing yourself almost the... um, like, the next time to be like, look, you have permission to say no. You yeah. have permission. And I yeah. think that that's at least hard for me to be like, no, 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 you can say no with grace yeah. um, and then stick to it and make sure that someone then doesn't um, overstep, their, you know, overstep right. that boundary right. that you set in the first place.
0: Well, in a sense, like, nobody, like, when we're actually exercising healthy boundaries, um, we take responsibility for our energy and our time. So someone can't even really overstep that. They can try, you know, but it's up to yeah, us exactly. to keep the boundary sacred. And this ends up tracking all the way back to the false anxiety we were talking about mm-hmm. because something as simple as like understanding how to heal our gut, it, it's, you know, take, take the alcohol example. When we are faced with that choice, we're sitting at the restaurant, we're with friends, everyone is sharing in a bottle of wine. And what we're thinking to ourselves in that moment is like, well, Everyone's doing it, It looks kind of cool, I'm sure it would be relaxing, but then we realize we've made a commitment to ourselves or we realize we've tracked it and we have worse sleep or we feel just a little bit more irritable and anxious the next day. So we think I'm gonna do this radical against the grain, salmon swimming upstream thing and I'm gonna not drink. And all the times we practiced saying no to the random coffee kind of prepared us for this moment Mm. because it's all about teaching ourselves not to betray ourselves. And if in that moment, not having the drink is the act of radical self-love, we're now better at that. We've developed that skill and kind of cultivated it. And so then we can say kind of with n- no big deal, like, I'm not drinking tonight. And we get better at honoring that need. And this, this comes back to that couples therapy with the body. We're suddenly in a better dynamic with ourselves
1: and our own needs. I love that so much. I'm so um, goal-oriented. So... Is this going to get you towards your goal, yes or no? So it's like, I, because I don't ever want to put judgment or shame on myself for choosing alcohol, for smoking weed, for, you know, whatever. Yeah. Like, it's just like, no, 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 do you have a goal? And if you take this shot or whatever, is it moving you towards your goal, yes or no? And if the answer is no, but I'm like, but I, I feel like I want to bond with my friends or whatever, then I actually, like, have reasoning and I kind of give myself the, grace Of go, go, go ham, you know, yeah. have a shot. Um, knowing then the next day how I'm gonna feel, and yeah. that's the yeah. thing of like it not surprising me. Yeah, and I like that's the thing yeah. that I want the you know everyone watching right now and everything that you're saying is so amazing that people could start to identify what's happening within their own bodies, right? Not like what works for you or works for me is that training them to listen to their bodies to then act in accordance. Um, without the judgment and do things with the eyes wide open. Yeah.
0: In a way, like, you can also be in a healthy relationship with your body and say yes to the drink, yes, right? It's more yes. like if you and your body are a couple and, and the couple, <laughs> like one member of the partnership is like, don't have the drink. And you're like, nah, I'm going to do it. You know, then there's a little breakdown there, a little rupture. Mm. But if you're like, body, I think tonight we're going to do this. And body's like, okay, I give you my blessing. Then you can proceed. And it didn't rupture that relationship mm-hmm. at all. That's such a really good way of putting it, I love that. Goals is something really interesting, especially because we're we're in this moment right now, you can sort of see on social media, there's a reckoning with how we should be pushing ourselves mm. and should we be setting goals and meeting them and sort of being really disciplined and motivated or should we be really coddling or enabling mm. or should we nap more, or should we rest more, you know, you kind of see these different schools of thought. I think it's fascinating. And I'll say one thing is that we just need to make this choice for ourselves. It just needs to be a personal, conscious, eyes wide open decision. And for some of us, it's a goal time. It's like, no, I, I really want to get healthier or exercise more or get in bed earlier or whatever the case may be. And for some people, it's actually about releasing some of those goals and being softer and gentler with the process. For me personally, I've decided the goal is a fulfilling life. And I I find that this is really relevant when I'm working with patients. There's always this delicate balance between um, recognizing that what we eat, how we feed ourselves does impact our mental health. Mm -hmm. But sometimes taking that too far, we can start to develop orthorexia. We can get obsessive or fixated on it. And then in certain ways we've it's become countertherapeutic, and that's not helping mental health either to isolate from dinners with friends and to obsessively meal prep. And so there's this balance between these two things and I feel like we always need to see it, at least for me, through the lens of a fulfilling life. And if your health is really out of balance, it's time to roll up your sleeves and do what's necessary to get your physical health into balance so that your physical health can kind of recede into the background. Mm. And at this point, it's just a foundation for a fulfilling life. But if all the self-care and all the meal prepping and all of that starts to become a part-time job, then it's it's the self-care itself that is now standing in the way of a fulfilling life. So we have to strike that balance, and it's personal, and it might even change month to month, depending on where you are in your healing trajectory but um, I think a really healthy goal is to kind of see this as, well, what is building towards a fulfilling life? Sometimes it's more motivation, discipline
1: goals, and sometimes it's a little bit less. I love that you said that so much. So I had, you know, massive gut issues. It's like, okay, Lisa, you're gonna be perfect. You're gonna eat the right things. You're gonna eat, like, everything, right? Because I had done so much damage to myself, mm. I want to, to almost flip the thing and be like, now you're gonna do everything right. And of course, like you just said, in trying to do everything right, in trying to meal prep, in trying to make sure that I eat three hours before bed, in making sure that I'm trying to get at least nine hours and I wake up after six and I start to think something's wrong with me, like all of these things in the obsession of trying to be perfect because I thought that that would heal me, like you just said, it ends up making yourself worse. Yeah. Yeah. It's tricky because the gut, you know, it's a, it's a, physical organ it's
0: also a psycho-spiritual mm. organ and it is very keenly mm, sort of under the control of our autonomic nervous system mm. and that's that part of our nervous system that's either in sympathetic tone, right. fight or flight or freeze or parasympathetic, rest, digest, repair and f- especially to heal from past gut damage we need that state of relaxation, mm-hmm. which in certain ways is at odds with meal prepping and um, doing everything right, because we don't live in a food environment that makes it easy to eat well. Mm-hmm. That's the old, that's sort of the central issue. If we lived on Whole30 Island and healthy food was <laughs> plentiful and everywhere, and anytime you went out to dinner, it was like, oh, here's your grass-fed steak, and here's the sauteed organic broccoli. Like, it wouldn't, It wouldn't take obsessiveness Mm -hmm. to eat well, but that's not the food environment we live in. Everywhere we go there is something affordable, addictive, um, you know, that's processed, that's inflammatory, so it makes it really difficult. And I think that when we want to heal our gut, or if we just are in maintenance mode and we want to keep things well, it requires a mindset of relaxation, and that's what's so difficult. Um, But so in some ways we have to kind of figure out where can we set it and forget it, How can we be sort of 80-20 about it and can we eat well at home and can we have you know loosen the reins a little bit when we're out and about just to make it so that we are still having some pleasure and ease and indulgence but also taking care of our bodies and i
1: think the ease itself is medicine Ease itself is medicine. Hmm. That was great. I love that. So you actually have a list of like all these long-term things that we can do to set ourselves up for success. I'm all about that. I'm never like, give me something quick and like one two step, and my anxieties disappeared. Like (laughs) I, I know life well enough to know that's never gonna work. So I go, cool, what are the things that I can work on for the rest of my life to improve myself? And I do, I always think of everything as a life journey because the second I think of it as being a quick fix, I disappoint myself. Mm. So I come into this going, okay, long-term success. So long-term success, I love um, if we could go down a few. So you said diet, which um, I think is the gut, which is very important. Um, talk to me about like what are the things, I know you say turmeric, like things like that where I'm just yeah. like, really? I yeah. it? Um, what other things can we actually implement in our diet and actually you even said things that are inflammatory like processed foods to take out even if it feels nice, like it is actually doing damage to your body long term and to the brain. Yeah. So I love that you mentioned that. What are some other things that we can do?
0: Yeah, I think the main way to think about diet is that there are going to be the foods that are actively inflammatory, that get your body out of balance and then there's all these foods that we need also. So you do want to do your best to err on the side of avoiding really, it's the fake foods. Mm -hmm. It's anything that hasn't existed for millennia. I generally give a pass to just about anything that humans have been consuming forever. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of cultural programming and marketing and media headlines telling us, you know, egg yolks are bad, cholesterol is bad, fat is bad, saturated fat is bad. And um, I tend to think that like the man-made, recent, processed foods, that's where we want to be wary and anything that's always existed, even if it's unhealthy, like saturated fat, is actually generally okay. And it's helpful sometimes to see it through a lens of what, what were your ancestors eating? Mm. You know, many of us are sort of at this point, we're a mutt of many different ancestral lines, but we wanna be aware of what are, what are our genes expecting from our diets? And if you, um, you know, if you descended from somewhere where people were eating coconut oil and rice, and you know, if this is like, you can eat that and feel pretty good about it. Mm-hmm. And ultimately the test is how does your body do with it? But I think a big part of when we're thinking about how to navigate eating is we talk a lot about what to not eat. Mm-hmm. And I'll jump on board that conversation all day. You know, I'll talk about the issues with conventional American gluten and how our wheat crop is sprayed with Roundup and how that can be really inflammatory and affect our gut flora and create um, intestinal permeability or leaky gut for a lot of us. So there's a lot of issues there. Dairy, it depends on the person. Some people do great with it. Some people really don't. So we just have to be honest with ourselves if we don't do well Mm -hmm. with dairy. Um, And then all of the processed foods. And I think a really under-the-radar food to avoid is the industrially processed vegetable and seed oils, things Mm -hmm. like canola oil, soybean oil. And the tricky thing is that we all know that olive oil is healthy, but a lot of times olive oil is like 51% olive oil and it's cut with things like canola oil. So you kind of want to invest and make sure you're getting good quality olive oil that really is what it says it is. But so that's all the what we want to avoid and it's a long conversation, and sometimes like you can hear the laundry list of things that we should avoid, you know, artificial sugars and all this, and added sugars in general, and our eyes can start to roll to the back of our head and we're just overwhelmed. And now you just made my life totally bland and boring.
1: Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and
0: you made me weird and I have to socially isolate because right, my friends are going out to this restaurant, right. it doesn't check these boxes. Um, and so it is helpful to be aware of that, but. I use it always as an error on the side of avoiding those things mm-hmm. when you can. For mm-hmm. some people, if you're celiac, it has to be 100% with gluten. Mm-hmm. But a lot of these things, it's more like you do your best, you do it when you can, go just up to that limit where if you went past that, it would start to really negatively impact your life. But do it when it's easy. And then there's the part that we're not talking enough about in the conversation about how to feed ourselves, which is what to add in. What does your plate actually look like? And this is also critically important for anxiety because a lot of times we're anxious because we don't have enough healthy fats in our diet or because we're micronutrient deficient we're missing vitamin B12 or we're missing folate. And that's where we have to kind of think about nutrition almost like this scavenger hunt. Our mental health really comes down to things like neurotransmitters and ion channels, and it simply requires raw materials. It needs raw materials that comes from nutrients, that comes from vitamins and minerals, and it comes from our food. So if we want to feel well, if we want to have optimal mental health, optimal immune health, we just have to give our bodies the raw materials. It's as simple as that, but it's hard in life. Mm-hmm. And so you want to think about what's nutrient dense? What have I not eaten recently that I need to replete? you know, and so I think about foods like organ meats, chicken liver pate, which has kind of fallen out of favor in the West, not really on
1: most people's (laughs) plate. (laughs) If If you're (laughs) watching the video, you may just see my face. (laughs) And thanks for tuning in. We'll see you guys later.
0: (laughs) Chicken liver pate is actually a very nutrient-dense food. Mm. So even if you can just incorporate a spoonful here and there, that can go a long way. It's sort of like a mother nature's multivitamin. Mm -hmm. Egg yolks are nutrient dense. Spices, herbs are very nutrient dense. And then we need to think not just about like, well just eat chicken liver pate all the time then. That's not the solution, it's about balance. Mm -hmm. And so you wanna think about how did your great, great, great grandmother eat? She understood balance most likely. Her plate had a little bit of well-sourced protein, a little bit of starchy vegetables, starchy tubers and vegetables with plentiful healthy fats throughout and that's how we wanna try to feed ourselves when possible without driving ourselves crazy.
1: and guys, and my homie, even with the fears, the doubts, and uncertainty, you can finally go after what you freaking want in life, set boundaries, speak up, show up, fight imposter syndrome and stop people pleasing and I break down how to actually do this step by step in my book Radical Confidence and when you pre-order your copy of Radical Confidence right now today guys you can get a free gift valued at $171 which includes my Ultimate Guide to Radical Confidence which is a workbook that you actually can work through as you're reading my book three months ad-free listening to Women of Impact on podcast and one hour exclusive relationship coaching session with me and my hubby of 21 years, Tom. So my homie, if you go and pre-order this book right now, you'll get all of those things for utterly free, which has been valued at $171. So go over to radicalconfidence.com to pre-order your copy right now. That's radicalconfidence.com. See you there, my homie. Let's freaking go I love that. Thank you for breaking that down. That's so important. I don't know how many people really associate what they eat with then feeling anxious and things like that. And diet being the thing that is in your control, unless you're being force-fed, like that is in your control, that is in your house. And I understand costs and money is an, an, an issue. So, you know, I don't know what chicken liver pate costs, but like there are certain things like you said, like other things that you can do to help, things that you can avoid to help. And then the one thing I'd love to add to that is that then assess how you feel. Yeah. Because my husband can eat the most crazy foods that I can't. <laughs> and not realizing the bodies were different back in the day when I first married him, I would think, well, if he can eat it, then so should I. And I would wake up the next day, stomach cramps, sad, mm. tired, and all of these things. So I love that you said that. I want people to really hear that they need to try things Assess how they feel and see if it works for them. Um, because even egg yolk, like I love eggs. And then I actually realized they, they bother my stomach. And it wasn't until I removed them that I realized what it was actually doing to me. Because we do the same thing every day, right? I've had eggs since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So try new things like that. I yeah. think it's so powerful.
0: Yeah, I think it's such an important compass to think about what is sort of erring on the side of eating real food, erring on the side of avoiding fake food, and most of all, just listening. Because yeah. we can talk about what is healthy food, but you're going to have some degree of bio-individuality with this, and so you just want to listen, how does this work with your with your body? Eggs are actually a really interesting example. Eggs are a healthy food in my book, especially the yolk. Not this like egg white omelet thing that's like <laughs> missing all the good stuff. The cholesterol, the choline, the folate, all of that is in the yolk but I actually personally don't tolerate eggs which is a bummer but that probably relates to years of issues with my gut and different ways that I would eat and live that was damaging my gut but it's made me unable to really tolerate eggs. So some foods are going to be inherently healthy but not necessarily right for us.
1: And then just to add to that which is exactly what you said, and it may evolve. So yeah. you may go, well, why all of a sudden, I don't understand. I've never had this for, you know, the last 25 years of my life. And it may be because your body's changing. And so yes. the reaction it's having to these foods then can be a certain cause to then you feeling anxious and all these other emotions and moods. Yeah, that's exactly right. All right, amazing. Now let's go on to sleep, uh-huh. because you've got so many tactical things on sleep, and I love this. And so I actually wanna start with, what is this, the your sleep shoe size? Yeah, I wish I knew who to credit for this idea. It's not my idea.
0: I heard about it somewhere on some podcast like over 15 years okay. ago. And so somebody out there, Aww. you coined this term and it's brilliant and, and I'd love to give you credit. So basically, sleep shoe size. The idea here is that we're chronotypes and not only what time of day that we need to be asleep, but how much we generally need to sleep. It's individual, it's different for all of us. And we kind of have this idea of like, oh, we know we need to sleep uh, seven to nine hours. And it's like, as if you could be like at a restaurant and be like, oh, seven, eight or nine hours, I'll choose seven, please. Like that sounds like you get the most out of life. (laughs) But if that's not your body's sleep shoe size, it doesn't feel good. Mm -hmm. And the the analogy is so right, because like if you're a size nine shoe and you walk around all day in size seven shoes, it's gonna hurt. And the same goes with sleep. If you're a size nine, This is something so powerful in my practice. I think I have a lot of patients who struggle with mental health basically because they are somebody who needs nine hours of sleep, living in a world that has commodified time and made it so that we're not getting nine hours of sleep. And I think especially sensitive people who are often anxious, artists, creatives, intuitives, I think they tend to be the people who need a little bit more sleep. Interesting. And so basically, if you're someone who needs nine hours of sleep, Rather than feeling like, well, that's not fair, other people get to live more life, just own it, embrace it, and protect it fiercely and unapologetically, Mm. because that's critical to your overall well-being. That's when all the repair work happens, it's when memory consolidation happens, it's when we clear out all the junk that builds up in our brains during the day,
1: and it's really what allows us to wake up and not be anxious the next day. I love that, and it's so obvious in kids, Right mm-hmm. When kids don't get sleep, they're grumpy, they're moody, they throw tantrums, and you just basically say they need a nap, yep. but we don't do that with ourselves. Yep.
0: This is such a fun one. There's so many different ways to remedy sleep, and I think the most fundamental important thing here is to recognize that with the exception of a few issues, I think perimenopause, menopause is tricky, shift labor is tricky, jet lag is tricky, couples sleep disorders are tricky. Those are sometimes a little bit tricky to address, okay. but those aside, most sleep issues of modern life are eminently treatable. And the fact is your body wants to sleep. It knows how to sleep, but there are these aspects, these seemingly benign aspects of modern life that are really disrupting our body's ability to sleep. And so we just need to get smart, educated about it, and then strategic and get those things out of the way so that we can sleep. Light is the biggest. Um, And that's the thing that's most different between modern life and the proverbial savanna of evolution. We evolved in conditions where if it was nighttime, it was by definition dark. You were able to see the moon and the fire and the stars, and that's about it. And if it was light out, it was by definition daytime. And so our whole circadian rhythm, our sleep-wake cycle, is designed to be cued by light. And that's tricky because we invented the light bulb and ultimately Netflix and ultimately Tiger King and now nobody sleeps anymore. (laughs) So what we need to do is we need to um, just get a little strategic about the light that we're seeing in the morning and after sunset. The morning, that's the fun part. It's basically make sure you see light ideally actual sunshine getting into your eyeballs. Mm. And it doesn't have to be grand. Like for me, I walk my daughter to school, it's about a six minute walk and that counts. If you don't have six minutes to spare, maybe you just go out on your front stoop for two minutes but get some dose of sunshine early in the morning. And that starts the clock. Then it goes tick, 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 and it helps you feel sleepy, at the right time at night. Mm -hmm. And then what happens after sunset is like the real special sauce because we are designed to have the transition towards sunset and then it gets dark and then our body starts to secrete melatonin. And that's another kind of endangered species of modern life, right alongside GABA. And when we're not secreting melatonin, we don't get sleepy, we don't sleep deeply and we don't do all of the immune work and the prepare work in our bodies overnight that keeps us healthy. And so melatonin is critically important, but what suppresses it is light. And that's what modern life looks like in the evening. The sun sets and then the overhead lights go on and then we're watching TV and we're looking at our phones constantly, we even bring it into the bed with us, we have a laptop open on our couch. We're seeing so much blue spectrum light it's suppressing our melatonin. So we're not getting tired at the appropriate time and then we're not sleeping deeply. And there are things we can do to help with this. Um, Anything as minimal as even just downloading, like setting your phone up with the night mode or night shift mode, and putting flux on your computer screen so that the screen transitions a little more orange, a little dimmer as the day goes on. Those are not hard. Um, I think blue blocking glasses are really powerful. It's a nice kind of intervention. It's inexpensive, it's non-invasive, it's safe but it has high potential benefit. And what it does is it blocks blue spectrum light from getting into your eyes. So even if you might be living in a modern life or even glancing at your phone, you're not gonna be suppressing your melatonin. And then um, I think it's really critically important to not put the phone on the bedside table. And that one is really tough if you think of it as your lifeline and what you look at before bed and it's your alarm clock, but I recommend people pilot it. Just Mm -hmm. give it one week where you don't have your phone on your bedside table and see if you're falling asleep more easily sleeping more deeply feeling better during the day and then you can organize your life around that maybe you get an old-fashioned alarm clock maybe you set your phone charger up in another part of the house so that you're saying good night to it you know mm, phone i love you i miss you good night and you go into the sanctuary
1: of your bedroom without a phone those are so great and the reason why this so, like, it's like you said they're pretty damn easy to do yeah and it's all these little things that stack up like for me sometimes it's hard to do a massive overhaul but like to do these little things here and then to start to notice the change and you know again going back to what is your goal and if it is to sleep more then doing these things will serve you um and then also sleep to me is it is the unsung hero Mm -hmm. that it's the first thing for us to ditch right it's like Oh well, I can just skip sleep or I can yeah. just reduce sleep or I can work on three hours sleep and then you stack up and it just becomes like the ticking time bomb. Yeah. Like you said. Have you heard about studies where people have done um, the done night shifts, like work night shifts yeah. and so they don't actually yeah. end up seeing the daytime, yeah. so like their depression rate goes up yeah. and
0: yeah. there's So um, I worked night shifts throughout my medical training and, you know, I could feel yeah. in my body that this was not keeping me well and all the springs were sort of popping out of my body. I was getting less and less healthy. But basically so much of our health hinges on the neurochemical symphony that happens when we sleep in the dark at night. And just something as, as straightforward as night shift work means you're not getting that proper melatonin dose. And so they'll see as higher rates of things like even breast cancer, type 2 diabetes, it impacts our metabolism, it impacts our hunger and satiety, mm. um, and then melatonin revs up our immune system. And our immune system, we know, you know, it fights colds, it fights viruses, but it also actually canvasses and scans the body looking for nascent cancers. It's trying to find where is there some kind of growth that doesn't belong, where is Mm. there damage that needs repairing, and so we really do all of that housekeeping overnight while we sleep, and if we miss that Mm. full dose of housekeeping,
1: then the problems start to accumulate. I'm such a visual person, so I actually love that you said housekeeping, Mm. because it's like, if you don't housekeep and you keep making mess, What's gonna happen? Yeah. So I'm such a visual person, that really hit me hard. I love that. And that's true of night shift work,
0: but also just, you know, if you're someone who needs nine hours of sleep, but you're getting seven hours of sleep consistently, it's like that person is like, okay, I work a nine hour shift overnight to clean the house of this body. And then if you cut the work day off two hours early, they didn't finish. And so our immune system didn't get to do all the work it wanted to do. This is also true directly of the brain. This has been somewhat recent research, and it's really interesting around the glymphatic system, which is basically, you might learn from you know, high school biology, the lymphatic system. This is the series of channels and vessels around our body that helps detoxify, it clears away waste. And for the longest time, we didn't think there was lymphatic system in the brain, but there is. It's called the glymphatic system. It relates to our glial cells in the brain, and it's clearing out residue from the day's activities, and it happens overnight. The things that promote it are sleep and relaxation, and Mm -hmm. the things that suppress it are sleep deprivation and stress. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that, you know, I think about, the analogy I use in the book is basically our brain is this little city, and there's activity in all the shops and restaurants and homes, and then at night, people take the garbage out. So they're stacking these garbage bags in the alleyways of our brain, and then while we're asleep in the dark and melatonin is revved up, then our glymphatic system comes online, the garbage trucks go through the brain, clear away all those garbage bags, and we wake up the next day fresh, ready to have a great day, think clearly, have a positive outlook. And when we're not sleeping properly or we're too stressed, um, that isn't happening properly, Mm. and the garbage bags start to pile up. We feel lousy the next day. That's the short-term effect. But in the long-term, it seems to also, you know, there's, there's things that are suggesting this might even be related to the development of things like dementia. Because part of these garbage bags mm. is actually the same um, amyloid residues, the tau proteins. These are the things that we know are deposited in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's, dementia, for example. And that's what builds up on a day-to-day basis. But we are able to clear it out when we sleep, if we sleep.
1: Yeah, dementia is something that I'm so scared of because we still don't have an answer for it, and you know, there's just too many people in my life that I've seen suffer from it, so yeah. it's very heartbreaking. And so, I do think about the brain and if I'm taking care of it and what are the things that I'm doing. And sleep again, yeah, it was one of those that I just think a lot of us or most of us um, ditch or take pride in taking li- like having little of. Like yeah. I, yeah, I, I work on my grind. I don't sleep much, you know. And I yeah. did. I was that person for sure. And because I was the person that did all that and ignored it, I take full ownership and full responsibility to fix myself, if you will, and my gut. I have seen the way that I show up now is so different because of the way that I've changed my lifestyle. And I used to get overwhelmed, and this is why I love this discussion, because I used to get overwhelmed because it feels like such a big thing. And it's like, do one thing at a time. Like, guys, at home, if you're listening right now, take this interview, take everything you just said, and do one thing at a time. Today you're just gonna not set an alarm, right? Or if you can't do that because you're work, you're gonna go to bed early, or you're gonna get blue blockers, or even today just put the night shift on your phone, right? And then every day just do one little thing that allows you to start feeling better. And that was in the effort of feeling better was when I was able to reflect and go, wow, that's what I did to myself. But sometimes in the moment you take you can take pride on the fact that you're hardcore. Yeah, I mean it, it connects to I think in many ways like
0: capitalism in some sense mm. where we became, our, our time is what became commodified, we became worker bees and like you know it's the Industrial Revolution really and so basically what we and it ties into this modern thing where even if you work for yourself there's a kind of hustle culture, there's oh, yeah. grinding mm. and, and I think that we, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, I think there's something beautiful about making our contribution, like humans inherently in Marshall Rosenberg's words like we want to enrich life. We want to make our contribution. We're actually not lazy. We want to work hard as long as it's not demoralizing work and as long as we're valued and all of that have Mm -hmm. some autonomy. And so we want to work hard. But going back to that goal that I have of a fulfilling life, to me, just making my ultimate contribution and hustling until I have every last little bit of that squeezed out is not the, the overall most fulfilling life. Mm-hmm. And so when we think, mm-hmm. oh, I don't have time to get nine hours of sleep because that's productivity potentially, um, I think we also want to think about it as like we don't just exist for our productivity. We also exist to have a little bit of spaciousness to just enjoy the, what is to be enjoyed about the human experience. And so, and it's kind of critical to get the right amount of sleep to be able to enjoy. And so just seeing it as, yes, we want to make our meaningful contribution and we want spaciousness to just be.
1: I love that. That's a real, like real tactics, real takeaway. People can go do those things now with the diet and the sleep. And now I really want to, what you give such amazing advice on when people are actually feeling anxious in the moment. So I advise people that if they have any type of anxiety, to go and do all the, the long-term things that you just said, right? The diet, the sleep, all of this sort of thing. Be aware of your body, start to listen to it and the signals. But then there are the moments, right, where let's say you do all this work and you still find yourself in that moment having the heart palpitations, feeling like utter fear, yeah. crippling anxiety, or just anxiety, um, you give, multiple tips on how to do that on how to handle that in that situation so you talk about grounding yeah so if you can take me through the grounding tips that was so powerful
0: yeah i mean i'll be the first to say i actually think this is not my strong suit but when panic happens there are things that we can do i i love the grounding practices it's basically to recognize panic has this quality of future tripping And if we can come back to the present moment and come back into the body, because it's a very, it's sort of an energy that's spiraling up and out of the body. If we can ground back into the body, back into the present moment, it can take us out of that panic a little bit. So people do different things. There's like sensory, any kind of strong sensory stimuli. So if you want to put your hands through Play-Doh, or dried beans, or you want to open a window and get a blast of fresh air or splash water on your face, all this can be helpful. Mm. And a lot of people, a lot of my patients benefit from a practice that's basically like, you know, list a certain number of things that you can see, that you can hear, that you can feel, that you can taste, that you can smell. And if you really want to sort of stretch this process, you can do what's called a four, seven, eight breath in between each list. So you might be like, well, I can see, you know, these cameras, I can see this chair, I can see Christmas tree, and then it's like inhale for four, hold for seven, exhale for eight. And then you start to identify what can you hear. And I think that that's very helpful and very common, but a really critical way of thinking about panic, it's something, it's an insight I learned from Barry McDonough in his book Dare, which is really to recognize to not resist anxiety. And anxiety is in many ways resistance. It's resisting the unknown. It's resisting uncertainty. At the very logical extreme, it's sort of resisting death, death of ourselves Mm. or those we love. And in a sense, what you wanna do to soften the experience of panic is to let down that resistance, is to basically see the panic coming on and be like, okay, have at it. I'm not gonna strong arm this. Because when we resist panic, panic has a quality that's sort of like you go past the point of no return. (laughs) So once it's happening, it's happening. And resistance really only doubles the experience of it. So to kind of allow it to be a wave that overtakes you and turns you upside down, and sometimes you feel like you don't know which way is up, and you don't know if you're going to catch your breath, and that's what it can feel like in a panic attack. But like any surfer who's sort of wiped out knows, like, To resist that and scramble doesn't help. Mm. And what you wanna do instead is surrender into it. Let the wave take you where it's gonna take you. Keep your breath calm and see if you can wait until you bobble back to the surface. This panic, mercifully, does end. It's short-lived, it's temporary, it's discreet. And I also think it's helpful to see it like a scientist, to see it with this sort of investigative eye of rather Mm. than, oh no, all the alarms are going, like all of the systems are, are blaring red alarm, I think instead to sort of see this as, oh, this is my body in a stress response. It's actually functioning. I got tripped into a stress response for one reason or another, but now look at that. My heart is, you know, it's going at a more rapid heart rate. I'm breathing more rapidly and more shallowly. Um, my hands and feet feel cold and tremulous. This is a stress response. This is how the body physically responds to hormones like cortisol and adrenaline, and it's more an indication of yeah, my body's working rather than something terrible is going wrong. And so there are a lot of different ways to be in a different dynamic with panic. Um, but my real, where I like to focus is if you start to do all of these different actionable strategies that we've discussed and that are in the book, you actually don't really need to have another
1: panic attack. Hmm. Do you find that sometimes it could actually maybe help um, if you have one and then step back and identify the process of where it started, where it ended, um, and then using that as like a guide for next time? In the moment or afterward? off um, after.
0: Yeah, I think it's a great point. So once you really do feel reconstituted and calm, many people after a panic attack, they just need to sort of regroup for a while and really ground, child pose, yoga, something calming, take a walk. But once you're in a mindset where it's like, let's let's do the debrief on that, mm. um, I think it's, it's helpful. In many ways, my training was like panic attacks by definition happen out of the blue but oftentimes i don't think that's completely true and when i work with my patients on let's let's sort of do the postmortem on that panic attack mm. sometimes it was well a perfect storm of i was sleep deprived i was under stress i had had stronger coffee that morning i had drunk the night before and you know i was like headed into a stressful situation and sometimes that stressful situation itself it is associated with some kind of difficult memory mm. so there's physiologic underpinnings that we just want to be aware of, things like alcohol, caffeine, blood sugar, sleep. And then there's themes. There's always a thematic quality. Mm-hmm. And you know I'll have patients who will have panic attacks on an elevator. Um, and so there's always something to explore there, about what does that mean to you? What is the worst case scenario here? What about it is scary? And why is that a trigger for you? And sometimes there's really something, there's, there's something enriching in exploring the thematic quality of
1: where or when you panic. And even I've heard you say about posture as well. So that posture tells your brain something. So explain Mm. that to me because that's actually the first time I heard it. I was like, what? I didn't even realize I was doing that. I love this. There's so many two-way
0: streets in the body. So, so often we're really only thinking about things top down. Like I'm having anxious thoughts and it's telling my body to be tense you know but as we talked about with your husband when he's cold there's also bottom-up communication Mm -hmm. i'm shivering and tense and contracted and that's communicating up to my brain like these are the physical correlates of anxiety and so it tells our brain be a little bit anxious and the same goes with postural issues. So um, think about jaw tension. That can be a real vicious cycle mm-hmm. where um, the, their, the muscles of the jaw are keenly innervated by our sympathetic nervous system and this relates back, if you even picture a dog about to be in a fight, you know, they might be like like growl and tense <laughs> their jaw. So it's, it's hardwired into mm-hmm. us to just be like I am demonstrating aggression or readiness for a fight with jaw tension. But if you're just, like, an office worker and you're just getting a bad email from your boss and you're sitting there like, you know, it's not really necessary to show that you're ready to, you know, throw down. And so I think it's helpful to kind of recognize this isn't a two-way street with your brain. Mm -hmm. And when we're tense, it's tensing our jaw. When we're tensing our jaw, it's tensing our brain. And sometimes the easier entry point is directly in the body. So with jaw, sometimes it's about relaxing here. Acupuncture can be helpful. Craniosacral can be helpful. Yoga poses like pigeon pose that actually loosen up the hips, something that stretches the hip flexor, that also can has a communication and a relationship with the jaw, and that can help relax the jaw. And posture is really interesting. I think that when we stare at our phones and have that sort of bent, Neck position. I really think about that cutting off some of our ability to breathe deeply and have full breaths so we're not getting as good oxygenation. Um, I think about how it might impact blood flow to the brain. And then when we're staring at our computer screen, we're sort of bugging our eyes open. We're staring, which is not unlike how a f- human face looks when it's in fear. Hmm. And I think of that as a potential two way street with the brain as well. Like if we see something that makes us afraid, we'll, we'll open our eyes like this. But if we just stare all day at a computer screen, it might be sending communications back to the brain around our state of mind. And the last thing about posture is that There's, there's also this relationship with um, how we hold our tongue position and really, I think, I'm
1: thinking now, like, how do I hold my
0: tongue? Right, (laughs) yeah, so, um, and and there's a lot that goes into this, even multi-generational nutritional issues, like the fact that we eat softer foods these days Mm -hmm. and processed foods, we're not developing the same strong, broad, jaw and the wide dental arches that allow us to have healthy orofacial development and so then we don't have proper tongue position that can contribute to things like mouth breathing instead of instead of nose breathing and then we're not getting good oxygenation while we sleep and then we're not feeling as well the next day so all of this matters and so when we're sort of like you know in modernity it's just okay to have bad posture and to be always looking at our phones like this but you want to think about like what is what would be the picture of health in your mind if you saw someone really thriving really with a lot of vitality usually there's actually some degree of alignment there's a kind of a serene expression Mm. you want to see if you can play around with allowing your body to be in that kind of position
1: more hours of the day I'd never heard of it. I was like, it's so fascinating. It makes complete sense. Where can people find you and the book and everything that you're doing? Yeah, so I'm on social media.
0: I'm at MD, and my website is Ellenvora.com, and my book is
1: The Anatomy of Anxiety. Yeah, buddy! Guys, guys, go check her out. Check out the book. And if you're not subscribed, click that subscribe button down there, guys. And until next time, be the hero of your own life. Peace out!